Wonderful. So we've looked at um, some of the themes that we might want to take with us through Advent. We looked at the theme of light and dark. Um, we've looked um, at the theme of uh, God's preparation. We've looked at the big themes of death, judgment, heaven, and hell very briefly. Um, at the end, if you want to know any, uh, and if you want the, those pictures again, just let me know. Uh, they are in the book, but I don't want it to be compulsory for you to have to buy the book. Feel free to buy the book, obviously. But um, so, if you want uh, to, to know the, the artists at any point, so you can go and look them up. Come and find me at the end, and we can go through them again. Um, so, uh, I'm now going to go on to Mary. Can't really do Advent and Christmas without um, paying attention to Mary. Um, this is a picture by Henry Osawatana. Um, it was one of the first um, really celebrated African-American uh, artists. Not the first African-American artist, but one of the first to really become celebrated. Um, and um, I, I love the colours. Um, I love the, the way that the angel is basically a a beam of sheer energy. So again, that sense of um, tying it into the Blake picture of the, the sheer sort of energy. God has absolute dynamism and energy. Um, uh, to begin with, when you see it, you think, well, maybe that's sunshine. Maybe she's seeing the, uh, some bright sunshine, but there isn't a window there. That's a, a wall, I think, hung with um, blankets. It's, I think she's in a family room suggesting something about a level of poverty. Can you see the bricks? There's just a rug on the bricks. It looks as though that room's divided um, by boxes and things from the rest of the family room. It looks to me as though she's just woken up. I quite like her dressing gown, don't you? It's a really rather lovely piece. Um, and I've been trying to, to work out what the expression on her face is. Um, I don't think she's frightened, exactly. Um, but she does look a little bit anxious, uh, hardly surprisingly, perhaps. Um, for me, theologically, this conversation between Mary and the angel is very important. Um, uh, and the way that Luke describes this conversation, uh, the extraordinary respect shown by the angel um, to Mary, this um, young peasant girl, um, uh, there's a sense of um, the, the angel knows Mary quite well, greets her by name, tells her a bit about herself. Um, uh, the angel trusts her in advance. The angel is expecting the answer that, that he actually gets. You wonder, could Mary have said no? Um, do you think God had already asked other people and they said no way? Um, I suspect not. Um, because not because Mary didn't have any choice, but because actually God did know Mary quite well. Um, God had this sense of who Mary was and what she was capable of and why she would be a good person to be uh, the mother of his son. Um, there's nothing forced about this conversation. I'm always struck um, the way Luke tells the story about how little Mary actually asks. She asks about the mechanics Sort of, do angels know how babies come into existence? Kind of question, because you, you, you're not, not, not quite sure, really, are you? Um, but um, she doesn't ask for any more detail about it. She doesn't ask for safety. She doesn't ask if God's going to give the financial provision to make this possible. She just says, do you know how to make it happen? If so, then 
The answer is yes. Um, and, and then Luke gives us that wonderful Magnificat, Mary's response to what is going on, which suggests that God actually does know Mary quite well. Mary's got the theology. She's got the character of God really well. She understands uh, why God has chosen her, why God has seen her. Um, not because she's the best, most important person. She's perfectly clear about this. It's because she's lowly. It's because she's a sign of God reversing uh, the world's order. She's a sign of this great upside-down world that God has uh, always been creating and which is going to come into being uh, fully in the presence and action of God in Christ, this great reversal of standards. So for me, this conversation is absolutely vital um, to the sense that um, of the way in which God works with all of us, not forcing us, but knowing us well. Um, this is another one that I discovered in researching the book um, and that I've got a bit obsessed with. I tend to use it really quite a lot. It's a, um, it's a fresco, um, uh, and I'm not absolutely sure of the date, but it's medieval. I would, I would guess 14th century, perhaps. Um, uh, and that's not a chicken, in case you're wondering. Um, that is a depiction of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's one of the things that strikes me um, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't get mentioned a lot uh, in the Christmas story, in the Advent story. Um, and yet in the, in the biblical, in the New Testament account, the Holy Spirit is essential um, to the way in which uh, God is going to act uh, with Mary. Um, uh, the, the New Testament says that it's the Holy Spirit who will come upon Mary to enable the conception of Jesus. And this is the theological depict. This is the depiction of that particular idea: how the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary. Um, and it's really important uh, the way in which that is told and developed and depicted, because it's clearly not sexual, um, uh, and it's not about a masculine God forcing himself upon a female human. So it's not leader and the swan kind of thing. It's not rape. It's not power, God's power versus human powerlessness. I think it's quite significant that Mary's so much bigger than the Holy Spirit. You sort of feel she could just go poop and the Holy Spirit would be splattered against the wall. Um, that, that, and, and I think that's important, that sense of the complete authority given to Mary in this conversation. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is speaking into Mary's ear. Uh, and that speaking, again, is, connects us all the way back to the story of creation, where God speaks creation into being. So the Holy Spirit speaks uh, Jesus into being in Mary, um, speaking this new creation into existence, uh, this time with the complete cooperation of a human being. Um, and the fact that it's, it's her ear, so it's, the, the word is, is being... Um, created in cooperation with Mary's intelligence. There's a sort of sense that it's her mind, her will, that is being interacted with here in this particular um, depiction of how the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary. Um, and I think it's an important aspect of the way in which we see God working that really comes out in Advent, this pattern of human interaction with God. Not, not God forcing us, but God knowing us well. God doesn't need to compete with us um, for control, um, but, is, uh, but works completely with our reality uh, and God's reality to bring a new reality. Um, 
uh, and as Mary interacts with the Holy Spirit here, she's not being turned into somebody else. She's not being taken over. She's not being asked to put down her personality and character. It's because of her personality and character that she is being asked uh, to interact with God in this particular kind of way. Um, uh, and it's through this interaction that Mary finds out what she's capable of. Um, this is the reason we know about Mary, because Mary said yes to God. This is the Mary who resonates throughout history, uh, the one who didn't know she was capable of being the mother of, of the new humanity, being the mother um, of the divine child. Mary is beloved and venerated because she says yes to God, not uh, because God forced her into anything. And obviously this saying yes to God is not without cost, um, but equally we don't know what her life without God would have been if she had said the impossible possibility, if she said no to God, she would still have had a costly life. Human life is costly, but this is a, a costly life taken up into the divine action. So just for a few minutes, thinking about that interaction between us and God. Shall we say this prayer together? Lord, to serve you is to find our freedom. Help us to see when we prefer our captivity to the liberty of your children. And draw us again to the redemption won for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. I think I'm probably continuing the same kind of theme uh, in this set of pictures, uh, which I'm calling God with us. Um, because it seems to me it's a theme that I come up, of, up, up against over and over and over again when talking to people about faith. is this uh, strong sense that I think we can't help having that God competes with us for control of the world and, uh, and our personalities and our being. Uh, and yet the whole biblical narrative suggests such a different kind of approach uh, to God. Um, this picture is um, by Domin Domenicino. It's trouble with writing things down. You don't get in the habit of saying them aloud. Uh, and it's clearly Moses in the burning bush, yes? It's a, um, a 17th century picture. Uh, it's not attempting to be the Holy Land, I don't think. See that rather lovely little tower in the background there? Those beautiful, the lake and, and the hills. It's a landscape, presumably, that the artist knows quite well. Um, and this particular narrative uh, in the Bible, you find it in Exodus 3. If you haven't read it or haven't read it for ages, um, do go back and have another little read. It's, it's actually hilarious, this conversation between um, God and Moses. I, I think we're, we're very bad at noticing that quite a lot of the Bible is quite funny. Um, and one of the first things that, uh, uh, that struck me when rereading it recently that it says that when uh, God, when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside, um, so it, it sounds as though uh, it, it is possible that God had been lighting burning bushes for a couple of miles um, until Moses finally noticed and turned aside. Um, uh, uh, and what we're seeing then is something, again, of the, the miracle of the life of God. See the, the way that the heat and light keep coming through in all of these pictures as part of the depiction of how we see the life of God. Um, the, and it's burning that, burning and burning and burning without destroying the bush. That's central to the miracle of God's life. It is extraordinarily powerful. 
um, but not destructive. It is able to blaze uh, without burning people up. Um, and uh, Moses is not surprisingly a little bit petrified there, and you get the sense of the heat of the fire. He's shielding his face from the fire. Um, but the fact that he's just seeing a really unmissable miracle doesn't stop him arguing with God. You'd think, you know, when something that big has just happened, a bush that is not being consumed, that has, seemed, that has been lit, especially for you, so you uh, come into this holy place taking your shoes off, you'd think it might cow Moses a bit, but it doesn't. Um, he goes on to argue with God, not once, but over and over and over again. Um, first of all, uh, Moses says, oh, don't ask me, I'm, I'm not important enough. Notice that's not what Mary says. Um, Mary knows she's not important, but she trusts God's judgment. Moses says, no, no, I'm not important enough. And God says, no, but that's okay because I am. And then Moses says, uh, what if they say, which God are you talking about? Um, and that, of course, elicits from God that uh, extraordinary um, naming that God does of himself, I am who I am, which is just almost impossible to translate from the Hebrew. Go and read the shelves and shelves of commentaries on that one phrase, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, basically um, all of existence held in this one description of God's name. Um, but no, no, that's not enough. God has named himself to Moses and naming is giving somebody a kind of power over you. If you tell somebody your name, uh, especially in the ancient world, you're giving them a kind of power. So God is putting himself into Moses' hands by giving Moses this extraordinary name. But no, that doesn't, does it, doesn't do it for Moses. Um, uh, what if they, okay, I tell them your name, but what if they don't believe me? Um, and so uh, Moses, God says to Moses, okay, well, your staff, I can, you can turn that into a snake. You can put your hand into your robe and one minute it will have leprosy and the next minute it won't. Will that do? Do you think that will help at all? Um, um, and then Moses says, no, I'm, I'm not very good at speaking. Um, uh, and God says, God is incredibly patient here. God says, okay, but I'm the one who makes speech. Nobody speaks except that I have created the ability to speak. And does that do it? No, there's one more argument. Moses says, basically, I don't want to. Please, will you send somebody else? Um, and uh, God says, it does say God got a bit cross at that point. That's my exegesis. You might want to go and actually see what it says. God says, Aaron will keep you company. Um, it will all be fine. Just get on with it. Uh, and I, one of the things I love about it is why doesn't God just give up? He's got a world full of people. Why doesn't God give up on Moses and go and find somebody else who's not going to be quite such a pain? Um, and again, what you're seeing is some really subtle um, in, insight into uh, what Moses needs to be in order to uh, do what God is asking him to do, and showing you again how well God knows Moses. Moses is going to free the people, uh, and you'll remember that the people uh, once led out into the wilderness into freedom, they don't do so well with their freedom. The kind of moaning that Moses is doing to God is exactly the kind of moaning that the people of Israel do to, to Moses as he leads them. So he's getting a sense um, of what it is that's coming 
as he leads God's people. He's getting a sense of how difficult it is to trust, and he's going to suffer from that lack of trust in human beings as he leads them through the wilderness. Uh, so, uh, and Moses' conversation with God is sort of preparing Moses for what human beings are like when they're talking to God. Um, and you wonder how often Moses went over that conversation in his head and thought, oh, I see. I see now how God must have felt about this as the Israelites do exactly the same to him. Um, one of the things I love about the fact that the artist has put this basically in his home setting is the sense that this encounter, this kind of encounter that we're seeing between God and Moses can happen anywhere. Um, it could happen in Italy. It could happen in London. Um, God isn't confined to one place. This is a kind of conversation that could happen anywhere. Um, and uh, again, you can sort of see the same thing in this lovely Piero della Francesca um, nativity scene, um, 15th century. Um, there's a kind of generic kind of Italian town behind there, but it's an, a nowhere kind of landscape, isn't it? It's, um, it's eternity and time meeting each other in this beautiful, beautiful depiction um, of uh, adoration here. Um, this sudden joy, again, could break out anywhere. The presence and action of God anywhere. This is, in one sense, an extremely ordinary scene, a mother and a child. Um, and the sense that in any kind of ordinary scene, there might be angels there singing and worshipping and playing music that we just need to learn to attend to a bit better. So that sense um, of God, the, the particularity of God's action, but also the fact that it could happen anywhere. One of the themes that, again, I think comes out through Advent as we look at the particularity of God's action in Jesus Christ in a real place, in real history, uh, meeting real people just like us. And the same kind of thing going on in these... Um, Lovely, lovely pictures. Now, again, this is one I'm going to get into trouble with because I've only ever written his name and I don't know how to pronounce it. So there's, if there's anybody uh, in uh, this afternoon who can tell me how to pronounce it, I'm going to say Hei Ki. Um, he's a Chinese artist, this one. Um, went through the Cultural Revolution and then later moved to America. He's done a lot of, a lot of depictions of biblical scenes. Um, and they always have these extraordinary lines across them and beautiful, beautiful colours and sort of slightly stylized um, interactions of faces and so on. Um, uh, and what he's showing us, I think, is, is again what I'm trying to get at. And, and the paintings do it so much better than the words, don't they? They get into you, into different crevices of your mind and heart. Um, it, it, he's showing us lots of dimensions colliding, is what I tend to see when I see those lines. They're talking partly about movement, I think, but also partly about um, dimensions the sort of shifting lines that make us see uh, the overlapping spheres of action, God's action and the day-to-day -day action there. Um, the, can you, uh, the sheep look to me as though they're dancing, don't you think? Um, so the sheep and the shepherds are both responding to the angels singing uh, up above. I love that sense that the sheep are really full of joy um, as well. Um, and so this sense that um, he's giving us that God's dimension can vibrate through all others, um, that it doesn't clash, it just sort of inhabits uh, different dimensions, that extraordinary sense of movement. And then the lovely shape of the mother and child, 
beautiful, beautiful shape. Um, it's done a particularly good one of the woman at the well as well. And this one is um, uh, is the one that the publishers chose to put on the cover of the book. This is Kashisnik, um, who's a contemporary American artist. Um, and w what I like about that is that I think we're seeing Joseph's point of view. Um, and again, I don't think we get quite enough of that in, in normal um, depictions uh, through Advent and Christmas. Joseph is absolutely essential um, to what goes on in the Christmas story. Without Joseph, Mary and the child wouldn't survive. Um, uh, so, uh, but Joseph is so willing to step back and, uh, and to basically be written out of the story, simply to be a supporting character, all the way willing to be sidelined. Um, so can you see that Mary's just sort of leaning against Joseph, completely sure that he's going to support her, but she's not paying him any attention. Um, the women are completely fixated on the baby, um, but relying on Joseph to be there. And luckily, they can't see Joseph's face. Because I think Joseph has suddenly thought, what have I done? What have I agreed to do and be part of? Um, and it's Joseph who uh, is sort of aware of all those, of the whole world watching this event. Um, and then, uh, can you see the lovely swirl of movement there as people swoop in to see it and then swoop out to tell it to the world. Um, I, I like the little dog in the corner as well, with the puppy. Um, sort of wondering if, it's, if all of this is about her and her puppy, do you think? Um, not so much about the human child. So um, again, this sense of God working through the very ordinary, um, not displacing the human emotions. Mary is allowed to spend that time concentrating on the glories of being uh, a mother. Um, the women and Joseph able to be fully present. Um, and yet, that baby, we know, is the full presence and action of God in the world at the same time. Um, and I think one of the other things I love about this picture is that we tend... It's very easy to think Advent is about enjoying ourselves, getting ready for Christmas, lots of presents and everything. But actually, this suggests that we have a role in this, and that's to tell the story, go out and tell the story. Uh, and actually, people have been incredibly creative about telling the story for centuries and centuries, and the Christmas story is a good story to tell. Um, it's, it changes people's minds and understanding about how it is uh, that God acts. Um, but remembering um, Joseph there at the heart of it, thinking, oh my goodness, because if Christmas doesn't make us feel that at all, uh, then we're probably not paying attention. Let's pray. Lord, you are the still point in a shifting world. Teach us to trust in your strength and enable us to be that strength for others. The, um, the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew and Luke uh, and the themes that we've been looking at uh, for Advent suggest that what's going on at Christmas, that what we're preparing for, um, is uh, about God's ongoing faithful action from beginning to end, which is why Advent also requires us to look at the final end, at the great four last things. We're talking about the character and faithfulness of God, not just about uh, what a group of Christians happen to believe, 
um, but about the reality of God. And that means that this is um, about uh, reaching the whole world and enabling people to understand what God is actually like. So this one, um, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. We really shouldn't be looking at the Magi yet, so forgive me. This might, we're doing all of this far too far in advance. Um, but this is uh, a, a 16th century Portuguese artist. Um, you can tell that, uh, that the Portuguese empire is beginning to expand. They've obviously encountered, um, it looks like, South American people. He's, so he's trying to draw in that sense of all the different uh, ways in which um, people might uh, be represented in the world. Um, one of the things that's really striking, again, like the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, um, the Magi uh, who only come in, in Matthew, you know that Christmas quiz where you, you realise you've actually amalgamated all the Gospel accounts into uh, one generic account. Um, uh, the Magi are not Jews. They're not Christians. They don't come from uh, the branch of people who ought to understand the action of God. And they're not um, searching the scriptures and coming to uh, the understanding of where God will be born. They're using almost occult arts. They're using astronomy, astrology. They're watching the heavens um, to see this star. Uh, and yet they commit. They see the star and they follow it. They know it means something massive and significant, and they make a huge effort to follow that star. Um, and, uh, th and we're told that they go home rejoicing. Now, again, I think there's a real um, irony there in the Gospel account, and I think the Gospel theologians, who are brilliant theologians, I think they expect us to see this irony. A star is quite big. It's quite bright. It's quite visible. How come these strangers, these foreigners, are the only ones who bother to think what's going on? I sort of um, get this, um, I, I see this picture of loads of mums sort of drawing the curtains, thinking, that star is going to wake the children. Um, and loads of people, you know, loads of burglars thinking, I wish somebody would switch that star off, it's getting in the way. And, 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 and the world trying to pretend that this isn't something important. Uh, and these uh, wise men follow it. Now, we're, again, the Gospel that Matthew doesn't tell us how many wise men there are. We uh, deduce that from the number of presents. Um, but there could have been, you know, a lot more of them. Um, but what we're told is that they follow this star uh, and they come uh, to offer themselves and their strange gifts to the child. Uh, and by long Christian tradition, artists have depicted the Magi, representing different ages. So you've got um, the older one, uh, the middle-aged one, the young one, um, and different races. Um, because this is, again, a sense of uh, God calling all people to witness God's action in Jesus Christ. Um, notice that the wise men are clearly wealthy. Um, uh, look at the lovely, lovely colours. Look at the richness of their clothes. Look at these white boots. I mean, I don't know how far they uh, have ridden and by what mode of transport uh, they've come, but I bet he didn't look after those boots himself. I, I think there must have been servants in his train, and maybe the boots. Maybe he didn't wear the boots while they were travelling. Maybe he put them away so as to get them out fresh and uh, white and clean uh, for when they met uh, the baby. Um, but look at that reversal of roles. This uh, 
old, wealthy man would presumably normally have been used to having people kneeling at his feet rather than him kneeling at the feet of this young woman with a, a child, uh, showing no visible signs of um, any status whatsoever. Um, it's a very ropey little cottage, isn't it? You can see there seem to be trees coming through the roof. Um, uh, and this young woman um, surrounded by animals. And normally, this, I, I doubt if these three wise men would be anywhere near a stable yard like that. Um, and yet it's they who are nervous. This, the older one kneeling in front of the child is simply lost in worship. Um, but the two men standing up, uh, their legs are very awkward, aren't they? It's as though they're sort of thinking, um, uh, what do I do? Should I be kneeling down? Should I, what should I? There's a sort of sense of them being unbalanced almost by their encounter with the baby. Something is shifting uh, in their sense of themselves and their sense of their own importance there. Um, a beautiful little picture. Um, they are happy, we're told. They recognise when they come to the, the place where the child lay, they knew they'd reached the end. Um, they're just seeing a baby. How do they know that? There's something in them, again, that knows God and is known by God. What happens next? You know, all the stories you want to know what happens after this. I, the one I always want to know is the rich young ruler. Um, we're told that uh, when Jesus told him to go away and sell everything that he had, that he was heartbroken about that. But we don't know that he didn't do it, do we, later? I'd love to know what happens at the end of a lot of these stories. Um, and uh, if God calls all the world, um, he also calls the whole of creation. This is about the whole of creation. Um, Genesis, that the Genesis creation story describes a world in which everything is dependent, everything is interdependent. Um, human beings um, are not made first, but last. They, in, in that first Genesis 1 creation account, they need all that goes before them. They need the light, uh, they need uh, the other animals, they need the water uh, in order for their existence to be possible. And in the second creation account, the one in Genesis 2, um, God makes the human creatures out of the dust. He doesn't make them uh, independently of creation. He makes them dependent upon creation, part of this creation. And um, so as uh, that lovely picture that we see of the human creatures naming the animals, um, we're, what we're given is, a, is a, an insight into the real interdependence of humanity and the rest of creation. Human beings are shaping the character of the animals as they give them their names. Uh, and so um, the, the, all the way through, the New Testament is suggesting that Jesus' is coming is about God's, creation, God's faithfulness to creation, those genealogies, again, in Matthew and Luke, uh, the way in which it's shepherds um, who are called, the way in which um, it's the poor and, uh, and the unexpected who come to see and recognize what they see. God's faithfulness to creation despite creation's unfaithfulness to God. Um, uh, and we're seeing that, that, um, that the break in that connection, that, that theology of interdependence, we're seeing the results of that now as we look at global warming and so on, that sense that we have tried to live as though we can live independently of creation. Um, uh, and so I've just picked us a picture of Noah's Ark um, to, to show again that sense of interdependence between um, humanity and the rest of creation. 
Um, it's rather a, a, a lovely little picture, isn't it? Um, I don't know what season it's supposed to be, uh, whether we're actually seeing seasons there, but can you see um, human beings enjoying sitting outside in the fresh air? Don't like to think what the ark must have been like inside after all that time. It must have been fetid beyond belief. Um, can you see the, uh, the lion and the, and the um, horsey creature down at the front sort of rolling? I don't think the lion is eating the, the horse. There's no, there's, I don't think they've instantly gone into death mode. They're not, there's no blood. Um, and actually, of course, no animals are mentioned in the nativity story in the New Testament, despite how we always depict it. They're not actually mentioned. Uh, we're told that Jesus is laid in a manger, and so we assume uh, that there must be animals around because this is an animal feeding trough. Um, but, uh, but the theology, I think, does require it. Um, John 1 says that all things come into being through uh, the Logos, Jesus Christ. Not just human beings, but all everything that is has come into being. So all of it has that coherence, that interdependence, that unity in the action of God in Jesus Christ. And so what we're seeing as we, as we come, as we prepare for the birth of Jesus and as we look to the fulfillment, the second coming, um, is all things being taken into the reality of God's action in Jesus Christ, into the death in Christ and therefore into the new life of Christ. Um, uh, in baptism, uh, what we're told is that we're, what we're entering into is, um, is the new life of Christ. We let go of our old life, the life that leads towards death, the life that requires us always to be autonomous, independent, to rule the world ourselves. Uh, and, and what we accept is the life of Christ um, that knows itself, um, that, we, that uh, we step into that new life, admitting that we are dependent, um, that we need to be responsible and nurturing of creation. We're stepping into the life made for us in Jesus Christ. So the sense that um, Christmas is not just about God acting for humanity, but God acting for creation, the faithfulness of God constantly at work. This is another one I came across by accident. Um, he's uh, um, a native Australian artist, Greg Weatherby contemporary artist, um, again, picking up themes uh, that you would find in a lot of uh, native Australian art. Can you see Uluru, the great creation rock, um, in the background? Um, the Australian animals, you can see the kangaroos, the emus, the crocodiles, alligators. Um, uh, again, lovely shapes um, of, the, of the people. Um, the mother and child the mother and father and the child, these the strange three visitors, this is obviously the Magi again, isn't it? Um, uh, wearing a variety of interesting crowns on their head. And the two hands of God, this is the gifting, the sense of gifting um, there. Uh, and um, the, the kind of dotting, the, the kind of patterning that um, is uh, again part of... Um, uh, Native Australian art, art skin painting. You'll find that on a lot of um, the painting on on their on their skin. And this this is a sort of suggestion that this is the skin, God's, the skin of the world that God is painting on here. Um, something about God's uh, nature being painted into um, creation. And it's making the major point that God is to be found everywhere. 
which is also the, the, point, the point of the ascension story. Um, God in Jesus Christ is born in a particular place at a particular time, but ascends into the reality of God. Um, so that this is now the story of how we encounter God through all space and all time. Now, I don't know if Greg Weatherby is a Christian artist or whether he's taking this as a theme, uh, one of the ways in which uh, one of the eternal recurring themes of the action of God through a particular um, human family at a particular time in a particular place. I just don't know. Uh, which is why, for me, I uh, would want to hold it alongside this icon, which is very definitely about particular people. Now again, those of you who know Rublev's icon will recognize this as a deliberate play on that icon. Um, it's by a London artist called Meg Rowe. You can see this picture in a church in North London. Um, and it seems to me that she's suggesting that uh, you, only, you can only tell this um, story of the reality of God's action through all time and all space if you tell this story, this particular story. Um, you, it's only available to people everywhere if it's about particular people. Um, so this, this story that we are celebrating, that we're entering into as we enter into Advent, as we look towards Christmas and then the second coming of Christ, is not a story about a kind of generic God and uh, humanity in general. It's about this particular God who is, um, to use Michael Ramsey's great phrase, God is Christ-like, and in him there is no un-Christ-likeness at all. This is the the reality of the character of God that we're encountering here, a God who interacts with particular people at particular times. That's why God can interact with each one of us. That's why the burning bush could be just outside. Um, that's why the dancing sheep could be anywhere. There could be angels rejoicing just round the corner because um, God is not uh, a generic idea, but a, a real God who interacts with real people. Um, and the and therefore, it, it's not surprising that God, uh, when when the second person becomes the second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate, that God becomes incarnate in a particular time at a particular place, small place on the edge of history, uh, not a part of the the, the great ruling uh, cohort of the Roman Empire, but uh, a ruled people um, under oppression, absolutely no influence, um, except with those very few people that he met. What a waste of God's action um, uh, to meet so few people in those years of Jesus' ministry. What a waste of God's action all his childhood that we know so little about. All that time he spent just growing up, um, just simply uh, learning to be a human being, learning to be who he was, uh, learning uh, to be the person that God was going to be able to be fully present and active in. Um, that's the kind of pattern of God's action that we see throughout this Advent and Christmas story. It's particular people. Um, God interacts not uh, in huge narratives, but the, the little narratives take us into the huge. What we're seeing is the nature of God. And Megro in particular wanted to suggest to us, um, these are particular people, these are people that she knows. Um, she, she's painted um, people who go to her church 
um, and uh, she's suggesting that uh, there are all kinds of particular people that we often leave out of the story. As she tells the, the, the story of why she painted this particular icon, it was because a lot of churches don't, um, uh, and a lot of the pictures that we've looked at this afternoon, don't recognise the reality of the diversity of God's people. Um, where in our story do we recognise that Jesus um, was not uh, the little boy in his father's carpenter shop who could have been born in the East End of London? but uh, lived in a particular time at a particular place that was not Western? Where do we recognise the reality of the people that Jesus encountered and that Jesus continues to encounter and draw around himself? Um, and uh, the only way in which this is true is if it's true that God encounters each person as they actually are. As we saw with Mary, as we saw with Moses, God not requiring people to become something that they're not, before God will interact with them, but God being fully present to people as they actually are and drawing them into the fullness of themselves. Um, God present for each of us, knowing us well and knowing what we're capable of, which is mostly a lot more than we recognize or are willing to give to God. Um, a God not encountering us, hoping that we will turn out to be different, but knowing us well and knowing what we are able to be in the presence and action and love of God. So the particularity of those people that Meg Rowe has painted. Um, and, uh, and for us in this room, for a lot of us, people not always central in the way that we picture God or the church. So one of the things that this picture really highlights for me is that requirement in Advent to look out, to look and see what we're not seeing um, we are likely to be missing the action of God because we're likely to be expecting God uh, to be active um, in, in the, the sort of easy places, the, the comfortable places, the places where uh, we understand and know about God. Uh, and yet the whole of the story we've been looking at suggests that God actually is always somewhere else. God's interest is um, always on the edge. God sees unusual people and draws them into God's action. Do you believe that God knows you well? Do you believe that um, you have something to give that only you can give? Um, or are we like Moses, mostly saying, I just don't want to. Let somebody else do it. Um, uh, one of the, the, as I say, one of the things I love about teaching in a theological college is hearing people's call stories. Um, but one of the things that strikes me, I'm a lay person and we have lay people who come to study with us as well, is that a lot of us don't think we have a call story. Um, we talk about people going into the church um, and forget that we are the church uh, and that every single one of us is called by God to be the fullness of who we are and to witness to what God does in our lives. So this is the story um, that we're going to be exploring during Advent, this story that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, um, person by person, individual by individual, drawn around uh, Jesus uh, and filled and enabled to witness to what God is doing in the world and in them. So uh, as we explore Advent, I would love to challenge you all to be missionaries to tell this story, to pick up Kishisnik's um, great picture of those who swoop in and see the baby and swoop out to tell the world about it. 
few minutes to think about some of those themes. So I think what I'm suggesting through Advent is that we keep changing the focus between the huge picture and the small picture. And that that's um, um, an instructive thing to do for us as we look at the action of God. The sense of God who uh, creates all things and to whom all things, in whom all things will find their end, beginning and end. A sense of the huge patterns and purposes of God um, that yet uh, find themselves interacting by God's choice with particular people at particular times, with our small needs and our small desires. And in particular, the way in which God's action revolves around uh, this child, Jesus Christ, born to be the presence and action of God in our world. So unlikely, um, and yet so full of resonances all the way through uh, the scriptures of the way that God actually acts. Um, and so, uh, the, from creation and that huge Blake picture of uh, the powerful activity of God, which is also uh, the activity of God knocking at the door of each heart, that sort of sense of power and humble patience. Um, the huge themes of the seriousness of this. We're sort of choosing what kind of a world we believe in through Advent. Um, this one, where there's an almost impersonal sense of the fate of the world through death and uh, hell. Um, and then choosing instead to see the fate of the world decided by this kind of judgment. Because this is our understanding of who God is one who doesn't wait for us um, uh, to see ourselves truly, but already loves us. Um, the Bible says that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't, God doesn't wait for us to be right before coming um, to find us. Uh, and so that sense um, of history being retold, because uh, history finds its end in the purposes and love of God. We may feel that everything is wrecked and broken and uh, twisted and torn for us through because of the history that we have actually lived through. Um, and yet, uh, it can have a different meaning that won't undo the reality of history, um, but will give it a, a new sense in the purposes of God. Um, again, that big theme of God's preparation throughout time, the typology that we see God's echoing action um, all through time um, that still finds itself um, at home in the simplest of circumstances, in a family, um, in uh, um, um, Mary and Joseph protecting a child, um, in a life lived quietly and anonymously, Jesus's childhood life, still full of the action of God, though we know nothing about it. And this woman at the heart of it, a real uh, woman, really known by God, really interacting with God, really offering herself into God's purposes, not forced, um, but freely cooperating. Um, and again, that theology of the Holy Spirit, the one who enables uh, 
us to hold together heaven and earth, who holds together divinity and humanity in Jesus Christ, who holds us in the purposes of God, not against our will, but interacting with us. Again, that lovely picture of Mary and the Holy Spirit. God who can act anywhere, who might be round any corner. Um, this, the reality of God's um, interaction with Moses at a particular time in a particular place, the reality of God's um, presence with us in Jesus Christ is not suggesting that they're only in those places is God to be found. It's suggesting quite the opposite, um, that anywhere can be the place of our encounter with God, the time when we realize how well God knows us and how much God is entrusting to us out of that knowledge. Um, and uh, those... Uh, pictures of the dimensions of God interacting with our dimensions and the call then to be witnesses, um, to offer what support we can to the places where God is uh, at work, where God is coming to birth and then to tell that story over and over and over. And that this is a story about, again, the whole of humanity, the whole of creation, um, those of us reborn into this story, into this new life of Christ, um, are given that real vocation again, the human vocation to care for God's creation because we are dependent upon it. Not to fear that dependence, but to relish it and let it teach us how to be what we're meant to be. That sense of God eternally to be found anywhere, but also only to be found particularly. God's call to us to look for where God is active, to see the people whom actually are who actually are carriers of God's message for us and to whom we are meant to be carrying God's message. Look for the particularity. So those Advent themes of um, always zooming out to the huge picture of God's action and then zooming back in to the particularity of God's action. Um, that sense of being part of something massive and purposeful. Um, and that we are, each one of us, part of that massive purpose. Tomorrow is the feast of Christ the King, this one whom we celebrate, who comes uh, to be our King. Shall we say this collect together? God the Father, help us to hear the call of Christ the King and to follow in his service, whose kingdom has no end. For he reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, one glory. And then we're going to be very wicked, and we're going to anticipate the Advent Collect. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness, and to put on the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to us in great humility, that on the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.